Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you all and to have this opportunity to open up God's word together. Let me pray for us briefly one more time and then we will get into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to us by your spirit through the truth of scripture. Uh, We believe that all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by you, and is profitable. So even as we read your word here in a few moments, we pray that you would work by your spirit to instruct us in all the various ways that we need to be instructed. We pray that you would do this today for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, go ahead and open with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapters 35 and 36. If you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage, I think, extending from pages 29 to 31. I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bible so that you can follow along as I read the passage for us in a few moments. I also want to encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time this morning as we'll be looking at the passage often during our time together. We're covering today two whole chapters of Genesis, but given that we have limited time and chapter 36 is just one long genealogy, I'm not going to read chapter 36. I'll just read chapter 35. Here's what I hope that does not communicate to you today. I hope that does not communicate to you that you should just skip over genealogies when you come to them in the Bible. I did not skip over chapter 36. Indeed, there is going to be a very important lesson for us from 36. It's just that we have limited time. I want to make the best use of it, and I think I can explain what's happening in chapter 36 briefly for us when we come to it. So I'm going to read all of chapter 35 and stop there, but we're going to be covering both chapters 35 and 36 today right? The book of Genesis begins with the creation account. On days one to three, God forms the heavens and the earth and the seas. And then on days four to six, he fills the heavens, the earth, and the seas. He fills the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars and the skies with birds. He filled the earth with countless forms of vegetation, plants, trees, and things like that, as well as with insects and animals. He then filled the seas with swarms of living creatures, and then as the crown jewel of creation, he created the first man and first woman to rule over creation alongside of him. The heavens and the earth were God's kingdom. The man and woman created to live in God's presence and rule over creation according to his laws. But that first kingdom fell when Adam and Eve broke God's law, bringing sin and death into the world. But even though that first kingdom fell, God wasn't done with mankind. He immediately set about his work of establishing a new kingdom. He promised that a child would be born from the woman. This child would crush the serpent for tempting the man and the woman to sin. And through him, God's new kingdom would be established and his ultimate purposes for mankind realized. 
And then as Genesis unfolds, we meet the line of individuals through whom this savior and this king would be born. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, and we learn that it's through Abraham and his offspring that the Messiah would come. And then from Abraham's children, this promise is given specifically to Isaac, and from Isaac's children, this promise is given to Jacob, the promised savior king through whom God would establish an everlasting kingdom would come from Jacob. We've been considering God's dealings with Jacob for a number of weeks now, and a transition is about to take place in the book of Genesis. A change in focus from Jacob to one of his sons, Joseph. But before that change in focus takes place, God and Jacob interact one more time. And through their interaction and the events of chapter 35 as a whole and then into 36, we learn some significant lessons about what life is like for God's people as we await the establishment of God's everlasting kingdom through his promised Savior King. What are those lessons? Well, let me go ahead and read Genesis 35 for us now, and then we will consider those lessons. Now, follow along as I read it for us. This is God's word. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, <clears throat> Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bacchus. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. 
Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, (coughs) which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. If you're taking notes, I have three points that I want to make for us from chapters 35 and 36. These are three lessons that I want us to consider from these chapters on the experience of the Christian life. I think we see in these chapters that the Christian life is marked by repentance, death, and seeming insignificance. The Christian life is marked by repentance, death, and seeming insignificance. Let's go ahead and consider that first lesson, that the Christian life is marked by repentance. Immediately on the heels of the terrible and tragic events of Genesis 34, God in his grace calls Jacob in verse one to journey back to Bethel to worship him there. Notice how Jacob responds. Look at verse 2 of chapter 35. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Jacob is calling for repentance. His family, he calls his family and his servants to put away the foreign gods that were among them. Uh, From time immemorial, mankind in his sin has worshipped false man-made gods. Right, this has happened in every generation and on every nation since the fall and in every nation since the fall. In the ancient Near Eastern culture of this time, These were gods like Dagon, the god of crop fertility and grain, or Moloch, the god of fire, or Chemosh, the god of war and destruction. There were roughly 
50 different gods that the ancient Canaanite people worshipped, and people made little statues of these gods that they would carry with them when they traveled to bring them with them for protection and blessing wherever they went. And so, for instance, if you think back to earlier chapters, we know that Jacob's wife, Rachel, when they fled Laban, brought some of her household gods with them. And it's likely that Jacob's family had acquired more of these little foreign gods through their time in Shechem. But in response to God's call on him, Jacob is telling his family and his servants that their foreign gods must go. But not only is he calling them to get rid of their foreign gods, he calls them to purify themselves. They need to bathe or cleanse themselves to prepare to meet the Lord. And then after they bathe, they're to change their garments out of the dirty old garments and into newer clean garments. They're renewing themselves in preparation to meet the Lord in Bethel. Jacob is calling for repentance. He's calling his family, his servants, all who are with him to turn to the Lord. Right, if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I think this scene is as good as any that you'll find in the Bible of what it means to repent to turn from the direction that you are currently going and turn around and go back to God, right? The Bible is clear that all of us have sin. We've rejected God's rule in our lives, and as a result, we're all under God's judgment. But God in his mercy made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to him, right? He, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live the perfect life that we should have lived, but none of us have. He then died the death that we deserved on the cross, bearing the punishment for our sins. Then three days after he died, he rose from the dead, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice, and now that risen and reigning Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent and turn to him for the forgiveness of sins. And if you want to better understand what it practically means to repent, just look at what Jacob is doing here. Repentance looks like turning away from the worship of false gods and turning to worship the one true and living God through his son, Jesus. Now now you might be thinking, but John, I don't have any of these foreign gods. I don't have any of these little statues that I bow down to. I don't have any of these foreign gods that Jacob and his family had. You, You very well may not have these statues, but I would venture to say respectfully and kindly that you do worship false gods. You see, in the ancient Near East, people worshiped statues. But today in America, we worship things like health and wellness, or financial security, or other people's opinions of us, or self-expression, or political parties, or we worship our kids, our spouses, our jobs. Anything that takes God's rightful place on the throne of our hearts is a false God, and the true God is calling you and I to repent of worshiping things other than him and to put those false gods to death. 
I want you to notice what Jacob does with them in verse four. They give to him all their foreign gods, and verse four tells us he hid them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. That is such an unfortunate translation of what's going on in that sentence. It sounds like he's hiding them, and maybe he's just gonna come and pick them back up someday. A better translation is the word that's used three other times in this chapter, same word, he buried them. And he buried them to show that these foreign gods were dead to him. He was putting them to rest in the ground. Friends, that's what repentance looks like for you today if you don't currently follow Jesus. It's turning from the worship of things other than the living God and turning in faith and repentance to God through his son, Jesus. And to my brothers and sisters in Christ, Jacob's actions here are also a beautiful picture of the daily repentance and renewal that God calls his people to participate in as they journey to the heavenly city. Jacob already knows the Lord. He isn't coming to God in repentance for the first time. God called him 20 plus years earlier. He has lived for decades as a child of God, knowing God's blessings and personally experiencing God's protection. And yet, over those same 20 plus years, he has sinned and failed on numerous occasions. I trust that if we had even more stories from Jacob's life, we would have even more stories of his failures and his sin and God's mercy and grace in the wake of his sin. It's here that we need to remind ourselves of just how terribly he had sinned in the previous chapter. And then we need to let ourselves be amazed by the fact that on the heels of that terrible chapter, the very first words of chapter 35 are words of mercy and grace. Arise! What are you waiting for? Arise! Come to Bethel. Come to my presence and worship me there. And in response to God's mercy and grace, Jacob is moved to repentance and renewal. He calls for the putting of false gods to death, for cleansing and for changing of clothes to display in reality the spiritual renewal they're undergoing. Friends, if that's how Jacob responded to God's words of mercy and grace, arise, come to me at Bethel, how much more should we respond to God in that fashion in repentance and renewal, responding to his merciful and gracious call to us to arise and come to Jesus Christ? God is holding out to his people mercy and grace that they might find help in their time of need today. Right, He hasn't said to the church, arise and travel to Bethel. He says to the church, arise and come to Jesus Christ. Come, ye sinners, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Come, ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify, come, ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love and power. That is what Jesus Christ is calling you today if you are one of his children. He is calling you to come to him. So after a long week of wrestling with temptation and of possibly giving in to sin, 
we should arise and go to Jesus. What does the hymn say? He will embrace us in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are thousand charms. Sing it again. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are 10,000 charms. Friend, have you been struggling with sin this past week? The call is to arise and come to Jesus, to repent of your sin, to be renewed in your commitment to follow Jesus. The good news of the gospel is for Christians. It is for you today, and in light of God's mercy and grace to us in the gospel, we should respond the way that Jacob does, by putting to death the idols of our hearts, by considering our own hearts and asking the question, am I subtly beginning to put my hope in something other than God? Is there anything vying for God's place on the throne of my heart? Is there anything other than God that I can't presently live without? My hands have latched onto it and I cannot let go. The call for us today is one of spiritual renewal. Not by bathing and changing clothes, but by renewed obedience to the gospel. Right, Paul picks up the image of changing clothes in the New Testament when he calls Christians to Put off the old self and put on the new self. Friends, have you noticed in your life that you have been perhaps increasingly enslaved to things like anger or impatience or sexual immorality, pornography, alcohol, pleasure, comfort, escapism, gossip, self-serving behavior, slander, obscene talk, or any other sinful behavior? Friend, in light of God's mercy and grace in the gospel, God is calling you to put those things off and put on Jesus Christ. Put on patience, kindness, forbearance, meekness, humility, and every other fruit of the Spirit. And the good news of the gospel is not just the mercy and grace of Christ, but the presence and power of Christ through the Spirit who is with us, who renews and empowers us to live in obedience to God. I want you to notice how Jacob is encouraging his entire family community towards holiness. What a great picture of how you and I can help one another turn from the idols of this world and be renewed in our zeal to follow Christ wholeheartedly. Right? I want to encourage you, after church today, to have this conversation with others. Ask each other how you're doing with sin, how you're doing with putting off sin, how you're doing with fighting against idolatry and temptation. Right? We need others to speak into our lives, and others need us to speak into their lives. Not only to help one another turn from sin, but to remind one another of what Jacob was reminded of in verse 3 that our God answers us in the day of our distress. And he is with us wherever we go. There is 
No other God like our God. Friend, whatever you are putting your hope in other than God will not serve you or bless you or protect you like your God will. So put off the idols of the heart. Put on Jesus Christ. Let's be renewed in our zeal together to follow Christ wholeheartedly. He is worthy of our wholehearted obedience. And if we haven't been wholeheartedly obedient, we should repent and confess our sins. And God has promised that he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. The Christian life is marked by repentance. But we also see, and this is point two, that the Christian life is marked by death. Chapter 35 is really broken down and punctuated by the deaths of three people. Look at verse 8. After Jacob and his family traveled to Bethel, we see that Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. Now look down at verses 16 to 19. After, ja- after God appears to Jacob and confirms his promises to him, Jacob's wife Rachel dies as she's given birth to their son, Benjamin. Now look down at verses 27 to 29. Jacob finally comes to Mamre and is reunited with his father Isaac, who is 180 years old at this point, and he dies and is buried by his sons. Though Jacob has been called by God, chosen by God, and kept by God, he still experiences the painful reality of the death of his loved ones. And in time, he himself will die. To my brothers and sisters in Christ, unless the Lord returns, you and I will also someday die. You just need to sit with that for a minute. Unless Jesus comes back, you will one day die. And I say someday or one day, hoping that day is as far off in the future as possible, but also recognizing that we aren't guaranteed a long life. I mean, just notice again in the passage, Isaac lives 180 years, full of good life and old age. Rachel dies giving birth to her son. We're not guaranteed a long life. You and I will someday die. Some of us sooner, some of us later, all of us eventually. Most people want to avoid the topic of death, especially in our culture today. But I don't want us to do that because the Bible says that numbering your days, considering your mortality, is one of the ways that you and I gain a heart of wisdom. That's how we grow wise in this world. You see, death cuts through the noise of life, unlike really anything else. It's like an alarm going off saying to us, this isn't going to last forever, so what are you doing with your time? I saw this play out firsthand with Tom Bennett and Bonnie Holland, both 
former beloved members of our church who went to be with the Lord. As Tom and Bonnie neared closer to the end of life, there was a refining of their thoughts, their desires, their hopes. Both of their minds, individually and separate from one another, were captivated by one all-consuming thought. All of life is about the glory of God. So worship him in everything you do. As Tom and Bonnie neared the end, their thoughts were being refined. And I think it's interesting how they, with so few days left to number, came to the same conclusion about the goal and purpose of life. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. That is what life is about. Worship him in all, of you, all that you do. My friends, you and I will someday die. So what are you living for? What are you living for? Are you just living for the next meal? The next moment of pleasure? The next hot take on Twitter? The next scandal? The next task to check off your to-do list? Or are you living for something much bigger, much, much grander, much more glorious and awe-inspiring? The, the filling of the earth from sea, to sea, from sea to sea with the glory of God. That is what God is about in Scripture. That is what his goal in creation is, that he would be glorified in all of the earth and that his glory would be reflected perfectly in his people. So that's what we should be about with the remaining moments and minutes that God has given to us. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you need to quit your job or abandon your family and spend every waking moment going around sharing the gospel with people. What it means is that you have been given the calling to do all things to the glory of God. Your work is infused with meaning, in the home or out of the home. Your free time is infused with meaning. Your eating and drinking are infused with meaning. Changing diapers and doing laundry are infused with meaning. Everything in life is to be done to the glory of God. God has given us that that high calling and that high purpose in life. And thinking of the task of parenting specifically, I want to ask the parents, in light of the reality of death, how are you doing pointing your kids to the eternal hope that we have in Jesus? One of the things that we see going on in this chapter is the transition to a new generation. Abraham passed, then came Isaac. After Isaac passes, then comes Jacob. Jacob will pass, then comes Joseph and Judah. There is a handing off of the promised salvation from one generation to the next. Parents, how are you doing teaching your kids about the goal and purpose of life? That we should glorify God in all that we do. How are you talking to your kids in age-appropriate ways, about the reality of death and how we should be living in light of it. If that's an area you want to grow in, come talk to me, one of the other elders, or talk with some of the other parents in the room. 
one really practical thing that you can do that highlights the brevity of life and that we're all returning to dust is to visit a cemetery. Every time my family has visited the gravesite of a deceased loved one, it has provoked curious questions about death itself and what happens and meaningful conversation with our kids. That's just one practical way. Not that you need to go out of your way to visit a cemetery, but if you go to visit a loved one there, expect those conversations to happen. Let's brainstorm together about ideas about how to teach the next generation about the reality of death and the eternal life that Jesus Christ brings. I also wanna speak briefly to the teens in the room, if we have teens here today. My hope is that you live a long and full life, but the reality is some of you may not. I wanna ask you the same question I asked the adults. What are you living for? What do you want your life to be about? Let me ask the question another way. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Do you wanna hear things like, he or she really liked to have a good time? Uh, He really liked parties and going to sporting events. She was so devoted to her work. Or do you wanna hear things like, she lived with a purpose? a single-minded focus on Jesus. His faith in Jesus came out in everything he did. Or or she loved her family and kids in a way that I've never seen anyone do or do before. Or he had a contentment and peace in life that was infectious. But I'm not asking you these questions so that you become morbid and consumed by the thought of death, but so that you'd be reminded that the time is short, the stakes are high, and the glory of God is worth living and dying for. And the great news for you and me, if we live and die for the glory of God, is that death won't stop God from fulfilling his promises. If you just look at verses nine to 12, this is basically what's going on there. God appears to Jacob, God renames Jacob again, and then confirms the promises he made to him again. Some people might wonder why God is renaming Jacob again. I think it's for the same reason that he's repeating the same promises he's made to Jacob. It's to confirm the reality of the name change. Jacob has been made new, and it's to confirm the reality that these promises will come to pass. And the reason I said that death won't stop God from keeping his promises to us is because death hasn't stopped God from keeping his promises to them. Notice what God says in verses 11 and 12. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Nations will come from you, so will kings. I will give the land to you and your offspring. These are the exact same promises that God made to Abraham. Abraham died, but God's promises didn't die. We may die before Christ returns, but God's promises won't die with us, and that's good news, because one of those promises is that all who are dead in Christ will be raised in Christ when he returns and come into the land that God is preparing for all his people. The Christian life is marked by repentance. The Christian life is marked by death, And finally, the Christian life is marked by seeming insignificance. What do I mean by that? Let's take a look. After Isaac dies and Jacob and Esau bury him, we're introduced in chapter 36 to the generations of Esau. If you just look at chapter 36, you can just let your eyes fall over that page. You'll probably be overwhelmed by the vast number of names there. This is a list of the many children and grandchildren born to Jacob's brother, 
Esau, there are two things that I want to point out. The first is how Moses wants us to see that Esau is not inheriting God's promised salvation. Uh, We saw that already when Esau sold his blessing to Jacob in Genesis 25 for a bowl of stew. That he lost the blessing was then confirmed in Genesis 27 when Jacob received the blessing from their father Isaac. But notice the details here in Genesis 36 that confirm that Esau has not received the blessing. Look at verse 2. First, he took Canaanite wives. He did exactly what Abraham and Isaac said their sons shouldn't do. Not because they were ethnically biased, but because intermarriage in the Old Testament almost always led to God's people turning away from God. Not only does he marry Canaanite women, look at verse six. Esau moves out away from the promised land and away from Jacob who had received God's promised salvation. Look at verse seven. He moved because there were, their possessions were too great for them to dwell in the same land together. Kids and teens, can any of you tell me what other two men in Genesis had to separate because their possessions were so great? Can any of you think of it? You give me, go ahead. Abraham and Lot, very good, Jack. Abraham and Lot. So, so, so notice the parallel going on here. Esau is like Lot, who moved away from the promised land, who moved towards the cities of the valley, the cities of destruction, we later learn. Moses wants us to see that Esau is not inheriting the promised salvation. But he also wants us to see that Esau was exceedingly powerful. He was exceedingly wealthy, and his line of descendants was powerful. He produced chiefs and kings, lots of them. Look at verse 15. You see there it says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And then we read of a bunch of powerful men who who were chiefs of tribes, but not only chiefs, his line produced kings. Look at verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, which is Esau's land, before any king reigned over the Israelites. And then we see a bunch of kings listed. Now I want you to look at chapter 37, verse 1. But Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. Do you see the juxtaposition going on here? Esau has not inherited the promised salvation, but is wealthy and powerful and produces lots of kings long before any king reigned in Israel. Meanwhile, his brother Jacob, while himself having lots of possessions as well, is still a nomad in the land of Canaan, where his grandfather was a nomad. And his father was a nomad. Moses wants us to see that the power and wealth of the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms like Esau and Edom, progress at a much faster rate than do God's promises to bless his people. You look at these two brothers and you're like, that dude's got it going on. 
I don't know about the nomad Jacob. You even wonder if Esau was like chilling in Edom someday and, and somebody was like, hey, don't you have a brother? And Esau was like, yeah, my brother. Well, what's Jacob doing these days? He's still traveling around with sheep, just living, you know, in Canaan, just walking around with his shepherds. Like, but I'm, I'm sitting nice on Edom, got my kingdom, I produce kings, chiefs have come from me, we've grown in wealth and power. He's still, yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure what's up with Jacob, right? You can imagine that happening. In comparison to Esau's wealth, power, and royal lineage, Jacob's life seems insignificant. And this theme of the seeming insignificance of God's people against the backdrop of the power and wealth of the world continues throughout Scripture. Think of what God said to Israel in the Old Testament. I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous or the most powerful or the wealthiest. You were the smallest of nations. You were insignificant in the world's eyes, but I'm gonna take you and your insignificance and shame the power and wisdom of the wise and the power and wisdom of the world. Uh, Maybe it's because I'm a pastor that I notice these things, but I can't help but take notice of church buildings when I'm driving around. Whether I'm in the city or the suburbs or the country, I can't help but notice church buildings. My eyes are just kind of drawn to them. Oh, there's a church, there's a church. Kind of like seeing them. One thing they all seem to have in common, now there are some big cathedrals, right, in cities, but one thing most churches seem to have in common is that they seem so insignificant, right? Like, could anything important be happening there? You think people are driving by Bladensburg Elementary this morning and thinking, world-changing stuff is happening there? Of course not. You drive by these little churches, and let's be real, some of them are podunk, right? Just not big, not not glorious, nothing to them. And you think, so insignificant. Nothing's happening there. What important could be going on in that place? When was the last time you passed a church building and thought, man, there are world-changing things happening in that building? Those people must be mighty and highly esteemed in the world's eyes. You don't think that because church buildings and the church people that fill them seem so insignificant in comparison to the world, to things like the President of the United States of America who lives in the White House, or the Burj Khalifa which shoots up like three miles over the land and like looks down on all the nations of the earth, or to headlines like the war in Russia, the World Series, or the World Cup in Qatar, where they have just built seven epic stadiums to fill all the peoples of the world. Or you could look at a little podunk church in the country and think, man, there's something important going on there, right? In comparison to what's happening in the world, you look at the church and you think, for real? Like, this is it? This is what, look around. This is what God is using to bring about his promised salvation. It's kind of crazy, right? You shouldn't be surprised if nobody is talking about the church because when the world looks at the church, it seems so insignificant. You shouldn't be surprised if in comparison to the kingdoms and power of the world, you feel like God's kingdom is kind of insignificant. If you feel like that, you just need to remember that is by design. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1? God chose 
what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, what seems insignificant in the world, to bring to nothing the things that are. Compared to the wealth, power, and might of the world, the church seems really insignificant, but it is only seeming insignificance, not actual insignificance. What we're going to find in the future is that what the world thought was significant isn't actually significant at all, and what seemed insignificant was far more significant than they could ever realize. Leading up to the 2000 NFL draft, I'm going to take you all back for a minute, leading up to the 2000 NFL draft, all the sports commentators were doing what they always do leading up to the draft. They were arguing about who should be the number one pick, about who would be the most significant player taking, taken in the draft that year. Would it be Courtney Brown from Penn State? Or Chris Samuels from Alabama? Or maybe Corey Simon from Florida State? If you're like, I've never heard of those dudes. That's the point of the illustration we're getting there. All of those guys looked like they would contribute significantly to their teams in the years to come and even be the types of players that, that franchises could build their team around. But none of us recognize those for good reason. What the, the sports commentators thought was significant turned out to be not significant at all. It turns out the most significant player in that draft was considered to be one of the most insignificant prospects in the entire draft. He was so insignificant that he was the last player taken at his position. Six other quarterbacks were taken ahead of him, and that player was Tom Brady, who has gone on to win more games than all of the other quarterbacks taken in that draft have even played in combined. Wow, talk about a reversal of fortune. Friends, just because the world doesn't pay attention to what's happening in gospel preaching churches around the world doesn't mean it's insignificant. In fact, one day in the future we'll find out that what the world thought was significant paled in comparison to the news being proclaimed in seemingly insignificant churches around the world today. And that what is being preached from pulpits around the world today is actually the most significant news of all. And that news is that King Jesus reigns. And we see this, that news promised in our passage today. Notice again, chapter 35, verse 11. We're coming to a close here. God promises to Jacob that kings would come from his body. The question now becomes, who of Jacob's sons will these kings come from? Last chapter, we saw that his first two children, Simeon and Levi, disqualified themselves from inheriting that blessing. And this chapter, we learn that Reuben, his third son, disqualifies himself by sinning against Jacob. And that leaves the promised blessing of salvation and kings to come from Jacob's body to fall to Jacob's fourth child, Judah. In Genesis 49, Jacob says plainly, the king's scepter will not part from Judah. And as scripture unfolds, we see that it does. From Judah comes David. And from David comes the true king, Jesus Christ, who came to, to crush the serpent and to establish God's kingdom on earth by offering the forgiveness of sins 
through repentance and faith in his name. And while that kingdom might seem insignificant now, Jesus' resurrection from the dead confirms for us that all of God's promises will come true. Those who repent will be saved. Those who die in faith will rise to everlasting life. And the people who seem so insignificant now will inherit the entire earth where we will reign together with Christ forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to think like you do, that we would have eyes to see ourselves and the world as you see it, that we would walk by faith and not by sight. Confirm your promises to us in Christ. Encourage us in the hope of the gospel that we might put off all of the sin that hinders and so easily entangles and run the race with perseverance, endurance, and joy. We ask that you would help us to do that in the week to come, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.